0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Happiness Journey with Doctor Dan podcast, where every journey is worth living. My name is Doctor Dan, and I'm your host for today's episode. I'm a bilingual neurolinguistic programming and cognitive behavior psychotherapist specializing in anger management issues, both court-appointed and private marriage counseling using the EFT method, dissociative disorders, narcissistic personality disorders, depression, anxiety, dream analysis, and also provide life, business, and retirement coaching support. I provide individual one-on-one session in both French or English, and also do group settings. If you need any assistance, reach out to DMB Therapy and Coaching Services at 301-325-1550 and our website can be found on lifecoach.amslack.com. Today, I'm very excited to have for our fifth episode of season 15, a very special guest and conflict resolution expert and mediator, Kimberly Best. And just like every of my past episode, I will leave it up to the guests to properly introduce themselves as no one can do a better job. Kimberly, the floor is yours.
1: Thank you very much, Dr. Dan. And I want to say thank you for the work that you do too. Your scope of work is very much needed. So thank you. Yes, I'm in uh, near Nashville, Tennessee, and um, I work in conflict management at all levels between uh, conflict coaching individuals, uh, interpersonal conflict, organizational conflict, and on a social level as well. So um, I think conflict management skills is something that few of us have learned and we pay the price for not knowing those uh, because we keep we keep doing the things we do learn. And when it doesn't work, we do it even harder. And uh, <laughs> things get a little more complicated when that happens. So I, I really like my work. Um, I've been a registered nurse since 1980. I don't practice in nursing anymore, but I worked in trauma in the emergency department, and I feel like that working in conflict is kind of the emergency room for the soul.
0: That's that's so good. <laughs> Thank you so much for being a part of uh, of our podcast. Because again, when people are holding on too much conflict internally, um, their happiness is actually you know like compromised. And we see a lot of conflict in uh, marriages as well because of a lack of communication on how they interact with each other. And when we when we do not have that communication pattern that is healthy, then we end up always not understanding each other. And this is where the dialogue just breaks. So um, do you focus, do you work also with married couples, uh, Kimberly, or is it mostly, uh, you know, like organizational
1: no, no, I do a lot of couples and I even, um, as a uh, Rule 31, that's our Supreme Court uh, roster mediator here in Tennessee, I actually do some family or divorce mediations as well. Mm-hmm. And I reality test those because I, I find, and you probably do in your practice, that that people have so much conflict and are in so much pain that they use the D word as a trump card, not necessarily because they... Don't want it to work out, but because they don't know what else to do to help ease the pain and getting out of it is, you know, seems like their only alternative. Unfortunately, once you put that word out there, the whole world conspires to keep you on that divorce train. And, um, you know, you end up convincing yourself why this is a good thing without looking at the options of resolving that. And not that in some cases it's not, you know, the best thing for both people. Um, but but sometimes people really don't want to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the acrimony that is divorce, I work in that space too, so that there's an option of going through that with a decreased acrimony and uh, working collaboratively, especially when there's kids involved, so that you're not breaking the relationship any more than it already is. Um, And then you have options besides um, demonizing the other person, which is what typically happens in divorce.
0: But do you think also, Kim, that it is a generational issue because our grandparents, they were doing everything in their power to be able to fix the relationships and replacing it. But now with so many options that we have out there in the dating scene, um, people are more likely to say, well, the grass is greener on the other side because the grass Mm -hmm. that I right now, it's really yellow. It's really bad. It's dead. So might as well just go and uh, and change. But then do we give ourselves enough time, enough effort to really work on the problem instead of just trying to replace it?
1: <laughs> well, most of the time we think it's the other person's fault. So no, <laughs> we don't work on it. The only thing we were really good at is blame. Um, and I would suggest that there are the prior generation's maybe didn't know how to fix it so much as they did how to live with it, or even how to ignore it. But you're right, having more options gives us a quick out. And it is true that people are sure that the grass is always greener. And you and I know, and everyone knows deep down that there's a Price to pay for every decision. Oh my
0: God, yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and you don't even know what a big price you're paying by going through the divorce. And especially with children, it's a legacy price. That's- you know, we're teaching our children how to handle relationships okay. and how we do relationships mm-hmm. and how we do them when it's difficult and how we break away from them if that's what needs to happen. So we forget that we're creating a legacy.
0: So um, would you say, Kim, that in, in your effort to be able to bring peace and serenity either in couples or organizational or anything of that sort, do you feel that the the environment um, that people are in, either in a close ship such as relationship versus organization, what would you prefer or what do you feel it to be more easy to deal with conflict? Is it more when it's in a family environment or organizational?
1: That's a great question. I think the tenets of conflict are the same regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but the emotional investment in a relational one is, is higher than uh, a, an organization or a business, though they can be pretty powerful, especially around social, political, um, community types of things. Work-related organizations, um, you know, you have another life to go back to. But in our private um, relationships, those kind of, our, our, our lives are centered around those. So I, I think uh, your work people know you as the work person you are, your relationships at home know all of you, and there there is a difference there.
0: So um, it is because it's impacting us in an emotional level when we deal with our spouse and our children that we feel more impacted, because if that is not stable then nothing else afterwards follows. Everything just come crumbling down like a deck of cards. So do you feel that people will have the tendency to be able to put in more effort in their close-knit environment than their work environment? Because they could say, well, I could change job anytime or I could get fired anytime. So it doesn't, I don't have that same attachment. So for them, they're not going to put as much effort versus their family, but Mm -hmm. yet 50% of the marriage end up in divorce. So what is their mindset
1: Yeah, I would suggest that the opposite is what occurs. I think sometimes in families, we're like, oh, that's our family, and they're just there. And we put our effort into seminars, into continuing education, into making sure people like us at work. We don't put that effort into families very often. Uh, We want promotions in our job. I mean, I think we work harder to make ourselves better in our jobs and too many times let the families be second. I think we tend to treat people better outside of our families than we do inside. And I think just to shift the um, sense of priority and also maybe to make an internal commitment to, I will not treat someone that I love um, worse than I treat a stranger.
0: But then it goes both ways, two direction, because if let's say you had a, a crappy day at work you're going to bring that crap into the home. But then if you have a crappy home environment, you bring that to work. So that it works both ways when it comes to your mental state of mind. But yet the (laughs) personal space gets more, I would say dismissed and not put so much attention than the work environment. So how do you encourage people, especially who are going through difficult uh, uh, marriage problems, to be able to kind of bring some sense of balance?
1: Oh, what a good question. So I think our tendency to compartmentalize when we go off to work is bigger than our ability to do it in our family. Um, You know, we kind of switch to our work mode, which you're right, is all of us. So we're we're doing a part of me is present for this. But the relationship you is always underneath that. So you can put that aside. It is true. We can bring our work negativity home. Um, I think awareness, I mean, what you just defined is something to be aware of in yourself and see what you're doing. Um, and I think, um, you know, being one person and not two people, the work person and the home person, maybe growing as a whole person is a way to um, be able to take care of both at the same time.
0: So if we look at the principle of causality, the cause and effect, do you mm. think that, um When people do not have work-life balance mastered is where everything comes crumbling down because they do not know where to put more attention to the other. And because of this, either they put too much time at work and then the family suffers, or obviously they're not going to put too much time at the family because then their work will suffer and they will get fired. They will not have enough money to provide for the family. So where does a a work-life balance actually exist?
1: Oh, I'm glad you asked it that way, because (laughs) my partner's always talking about us finding equilibrium. And I honestly don't even know what that looks like. It's more like juggling to me than finding an equilibrium. But I think it's about showing up where you need to be. So when we're coming from a sense of scarcity, it's like I gave everything at work. I have nothing left for home or vice versa. Well, we don't have a limited supply, even though it feels like we do. But I think being intentional on who you want to be in your family, how you want to show up, who you want to be viewed at. I mean, you have to, just like you do in your job, you have to um, be be purposeful. And it, uh, it takes a little bit more effort because you can't just shut out the people who, you know, you're pouring your life into remotely. Uh, so it takes a little bit more effort, but the rewards are probably worth it.
0: So, but then rewards, it's relative to how you perceive them to be because- That's right. Bring life to, I mean, if you bring love to the family, some people, it on their love language, you know, so uh, the chat- That's right. And then again, we see families still like if the man puts in the work and it's never sufficient enough, or it doesn't meet the expectation of the spouse, the wife, then this comes crumbling down. And then the guy is going to say, well, I put everything in it and it's never enough. So where, and this is again, a very, very, I would say challenging question, uh, Kim, but where is there a balance in the love between spouses? What If we stop with those expectation, do you feel that the communication will arise, will be able to get better, more fluid versus people expecting too much from the other? And this is where everything comes crumbling down.
1: Yeah, um, so you're right. A lot is around expectation. I, I, and what you spoke before about love languages, I find a lot of times in couples, each person is working as hard as they can to give what they think the other person wants. And the other person isn't feeling it because it isn't what they want. You know, that's not, you empty the dishwasher, you put dinner on the table, You, whatever it is. I, but I, I do these things they're not registering on my, this is what I want in the relationship. We don't have the conversation. It takes bravery to say what you really need and to ask. Like for me, it all comes around asking, you know, uh, working together collaboratively to figure out who does what. Then then your hard work is meeting somebody where they need it Mm -hmm. and it will be appreciated. But if you work super, super hard thinking you're doing what you in a role think you're supposed to be doing, it's probably not landing on your partner because it isn't what they need. So ask.
0: Yeah. But then again, if let's say there is the the division of chores, I'm not sure if you read this article, Kim, I think it was from Switzerland or something that when the women were taking care more of the chores of the family, there was a better sense of community or sense of love between the, the spouses. And and then, of course, for the U.S. side, they said, oh, no, we're men and women. there has to be a, a, a equal division of chores or else there's going to be some resentment, some hate and so on and so forth. So when it comes to if I do a chore, but the man does not do it to the expectation of the woman and then the woman always feel that she has to be. Coming afterwards and putting the rest. So if he's doing things at seventy percent, she's gonna have to put the extra thirty percent. And then after a while, she's gonna say, "What's the point? He's always doing it wrong." And then the man feels the negativity, so he feels that he doesn't want to participate anymore, and that creates that uh, uh, with this this division between both. So how do we, or how can you tell women, or the the women who's listening, seven <laughs> percent of them on our podcast, how can you, <laughs> tell, you know what, whatever they're trying to do that's already A for effort. So mm-hmm. you have to kind of like start working with them and being more grateful and appreciate versus always condemning them.
1: Yeah, no, I, I know men experience that a lot. And when I first heard you explaining this, what came into my head was the word scorecard. <laughs> like we all have to let go of our scorecard because that will not serve us in any positive way in a relationship. And then- um the, the talking down, um, I think uh, you know, you've know you probably done some family system stuff, you know, there's the, and the, there are three people, there are lots more than that in us, but we can be functioning on our personality as either a parent, an adult, or a child. And the parent is telling a partner what to do or what they're doing wrong. They're criticizing, they're correcting, they're scolding. And I do see... Both sides, men and women talking talking to each other like that. We're not children, mm-hmm. you know, and um, and no one likes to be talked to that way. Then there's the child part, the part of us that's whining, that's complaining, that's expecting somebody to fix something for us. And then there's the adult person. And that's who we show up when we're in a mature relationship, in a work relationship. You and I having a dialogue that you're challenging a little bit and I'm challenging a little bit back. But we're not going to start calling each other names for that. We're we're in our adult uh, roles. Yes. We might. <laughs> is that what you're saying, Dr. Dan? No. Too soon uh, to say. Just <laughs> respect. That's it, as you
0: mentioned.
1: It is respect. Absolutely, is respect. You're. That's a very good word for it. So bringing that to the conversation can be the game changer. Because a lot of nobody feels respected when they're talked down to. They feel inferior. You're in a position above them talking to somebody below. It kind of reminds me, um, Dan, a story I'll share that uh, a very good friend of mine decades ago said to me, "When I fight with my husband, I always win because <laughs> i'm better I'm better at words. I'm more assertive. I always win. And then one day, I realized, that in order to win, I had to make him lose. And I want to love enough that I don't make someone lose. And that works for right, wrong too, because we argue about right, wrong all the time. If I have to be right, I have to make you wrong. Mm -hmm. And I wanna care enough about you and me who I am to not have to make you wrong. What a perspective, right?
0: That's a very interesting perspective. But then again, if you look at competitions, there's always going to be one winner and the the rest of the people are going to lose the first place. So
1: um, <laughs> that's a good point in sports.
0: Yeah, in sports primarily. Yes. Um, but then when you look at uh, when you listen to uh, uh, the Gottman Institute, when he talks about the four horsemen, which most people actually go through and, uh, you know, especially the the, you know, the stonewalling part, okay? Which is already like now ignoring the other person, putting a wall in front of you, not listening. Mm. But this can, okay, if let's say you go to a point where there's so much conflict in a relationship, Kim, and the person is so fed up and they they felt like they're being talked in a condescending way or accusatory or being blamed constantly, wouldn't you, what would we blame them to stonewall the other person because enough is enough. There's just so much that someone can take. So, does that mean after they've reached a stonewalling that there's no way to go back and no way to reopen the line of communication?
1: Yeah, I think there's never no way, uh, except maybe in the in the case of some personality disorders. Yes. Um, <laughs> right. So, I feel like in mediation and conflict management, I say that when we have those moments, we do perceive a wall like you said. And my job as a conflict manager is to turn that wall into a door. Because it's the what next? Okay, you stonewalled. What next? Okay, I talked down to you or whatever to you. What next? How do we fix that? How do we bridge that? How do we repair that? Instead, we hit a wall and we just you know, go back with that wall there and that hurt inside of us. And I think it piles on until that pile can become so big that it is easier to leave than unpack it. The ticket to that, the key to that I think is learning conflict management skills, learning communication skills. I think the stonewalling, I mean, the person being stonewalled tells themselves a story about the other person and why they're doing it. But let's get curious and find out, because maybe they just don't know what else to do. You know, maybe they're just so hurt they can't approach you. I mean, both sides for me always is a degree of hurt. And in conflict, when I'm sitting there almost every time, with the exception of personality disorders, sitting in the shoes of either person, I can see exactly where they're coming from, not exactly, but to the degree an outsider can. you know, I know where they're coming from and they're not right or wrong. They're living in their biology. They're living in their past. They're doing what the only thing they know how to do. And so is the other person. There's just no bridge between those.
0: So um, in all of your uh, conflict resolution, do you encourage uh, what we've been taught about reflective listening? And mm-hmm. that part where a lot of people You know, kind of like first listen, they digest what the other person is saying, then they basically paraphrase what the other person said to really take accountability of what the other person tried to tell them or tried to convey. But then again, um, I had a a podcast with a very, very interesting uh, uh, PhD holder, and he said that reflective listening is outdated. Uh, Now, what we need to do is more emotional validation, where we try to kind of understand their emotional perspective versus just the word that comes out of their mouth. And Mm -hmm. we thought as therapists, uh, reflective listening is one of the most, uh, you know, like basic part, which I understand. But then we don't really know and focus on their emotional aspect of why do they feel the way they feel, not what the word that comes out of their mouth, because it could be, again, misinterpreted by the brain and certain words are coming out, which you didn't really mean
1: yeah no, it's true. I, I know people think they're supposed to listen so they sit there and listen without speaking the whole time they're planning their counter and they're listening for what you're saying that's not true. So, <laughs> and they're calling that listening. Uh, now that's a quiet building a quiet defense is what that is um, I I, <laughs> I ask people to listen for what is right that somebody's saying. And I don't think reflective listening, reflective listening is to check in that you heard what the person said is what they're saying. It's not to parrot them. And you're right to include the emotional content without you don't have to name it for them. Ask them, what did that feel like? Or if you say that's seeing like you were angry, people get angered by you saying that they seem angry, (laughs) you know, so uh, asking them what's going on with you. And, um, you know how did that affect you? Uh, in addition to the um, reflective listening. So, so what I heard you say is that sometimes when when people are just saying something back to you, it sounds like they don't hear what I they don't feel what I'm feeling. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm-hmm. Um. Yeah. And so, how does that make you feel when that happens?
0: Yeah, but then isn't isn't it patronizing them to a certain extent where you kind of like put yourself in a situation where you tell them. How they should feel because if angry, then, then they will feel that they're the cause of that anger. Because if you are a part of the communication process here, Kim, the other party who is angry must be angry because of the action that the other person did. So, how do they distance themselves from not being subjective versus being objective?
1: Uh, so, it's complicated. <laughs> you <laughs> oh, know, it the- it's so complicated. And a, and a mediator's favorite words are "it depends." Yes. So I'm going <laughs> to I'm going to start off with it. It depends on that. Um, I think first of all, it's a it'll never work to tell someone how they're feeling. Like nobody nobody likes that. But asking them how they're feeling, but ask to understand, not to grade it, you know, not to validate yet whether it's right or wrong, but to understand. And how you ask that has a lot to do with it. I think you know. There's um, um, the the what's the the violence talk? The, the, there's an acronym, three three initials for um, how to speak in a nonviolent nonviolent communication, NBC. And there's a something you do every time about the, that. Uh, when when you do this, I feel this, mm-hmm. and I would like for you to do this. Um, Well, that works a lot of the time, but it might not work all the time. So I think the more tools that you have, uh, the better. I also think in the conversation where we're just reflecting, in what you just described, we're talking about being uncomfortable with other people's emotions, which we are. Yes. Right? We want people to feel how we want them to feel. But then we're robbing them of them because they feel like they feel. So I'm responsible for how I feel. You're responsible for how you feel. It doesn't mean that I can say whatever I want and you're not going to feel it. You know, it means there's a space in between all that where wording things, framing things that are aware of your feelings, but also giving the space to feel because some of these conversations are going to be uncomfortable and they're going to upset someone. But they'll, that's your growth to work through that. That's not my place. My place is to be as honest as possible Know and let you deal with it how you need to deal with it, and then work from there. Not I'll tell you this, but this is how you have to act. When I do, or I tell you this, but you can't get upset. <laughs>
0: Interpersonal relationship. If it's not uh, romantic or um, with married couples, when it comes to friends, does the emotional attachment still stand the same as the fear of losing them as friends? So you're going to be able to be more i say active in trying to fix the relationship versus taking it for granted when you're married, because it's not as easy to be able to break the marriage. I mean, you have to go through the divorce proceedings so the other person can take this as a weapon, as ammunition. But in a friendship case, you could easily just block that person and never see them again. So do you think that in friendship, they put more in, more effort into it?
1: I, I absolutely do. That's something uh, I haven't I haven't read any studies about that, but it's something that's even interesting to me. I I feel like I'd make a i make ai make a very good friend and I have a lot of grace for my friends. And I see that in a relationship, I have more expectations. Okay. And uh, and I'm curious about why one gets more grace than the other. Um, even though my friends know me well, there's something to be said with. You know, seeing everybody every single day versus once in a while. I think uh, we maybe are stepping on each other's toes more often that way. It's part of the reason for that, uh, but it but it is something to note. And again, I think just having awareness helps us to decide in that moment what we can do to mitigate for those tendencies.
0: So, do you feel that because we don't see friends as often as we see our spouse, and the time is very sporadic, so? You take this less for granted versus when you see them every single day.
1: I think there's less negative impact too. You know, less that challenges us on a regular basis. I know this as much as I love my friends. If I had to live with my friend every day, it'd be the same thing. Okay, (laughs) it's challenging to live with another human.
0: It is. It is definitely challenging. But but we're we're kind of like we cannot be lonely. We cannot be alone. Mm -hmm. We have to be like. Like dogs, they have to be, a, you know. In a <laughs> so, Do you think in itself is contradictory to how humans are supposed to um, to grow in society to be able to become like pack animals?
1: I think the thing we're juggling all the time is the space versus connection. Okay. And I think finding that in a relationship too, um, you know, trying to find that, you know, we talked about equilibrium earlier versus juggling. I think that's something that's important to find an equilibrium in, um, because uh, we may be expecting too much in terms of closeness than the other person. It, it seems like that's the bar to navigate, to find an area where we can come together and move apart.
0: So tell me, uh, Kim, where can people find you as a conflict, as a mediator, to use your services?
1: Yeah, mediator, or conflict management. Um, so Best Conflict Solutions, and uh, is my company. And Kimberly Best. If you Google me, I I come up.
0: <laughs> and do you do you primarily deal with the like I said, the couples or people who are in organization that they need your help. It's kind of a balance between both
1: anything relational, anything relational. So whole families. Um, now is a time for elder care and a lot of conflict around decision making There, medical stuff, but just for conflict in relationships,
0: Beautiful. whatever
1: level. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. Well, Kim, that is all the time that we have for today's podcast. I really appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to join us. thank you again for participating and inspiring our many listeners with your incredible stories and talents. Now, we hope that you've all enjoyed today's episode. And I'm also very excited about the many upcoming guests that we have scheduled for season 15 of the Happiness Journey podcast, filled with inspirational stories, just like the one that you listened to today. Now, here are some concluding words of wisdom. Conflict is an inevitable part of life but how we choose to handle it can make all the difference. Conflict resolution is a crucial skill that can help us build stronger relationships, improve communication, and create a more peaceful world. When we choose to engage in conflict resolution, we are choosing to approach conflict with an open mind and a willingness to listen and understand the perspective of others. By doing so, we can work towards finding common ground and solutions that benefit everyone involved. Now, it may also require patience, empathy, and a willingness to compromise. It means setting aside our own egos and desires in order to find mutually beneficial solutions that respect the need and desire of all parties involved. Now, ultimately, conflict resolution can help us create more harmonious relationships, whether they be personal or professional. It can also help us build a more peaceful world, one where we approach differences with curiosity and a desire to understand whether they fear and judgment. Let us ex- embrace this process and a valuable skill and commit to working towards resolving conflict in our own lives and in the world at large. Together, we can build more peaceful and harmonious world for ourselves and our future generation. My name is Dr. Dan Amzelek, and you may all keep pursuing your amazing journey in life.